Here's what's going on this week at ALCF. Make plans to attend the Fall Women's Bible Study, where Beth Anderson, Tiffany Miller, and Corey Loritz will introduce you to the fruit of the Spirit, nine key attributes of people living lives aligned with the Holy Spirit as described in Galatians 5, 22, and 23. The event takes place on Wednesdays starting September 25th through November 13th from 7 to 8.30 p.m. in Classroom 2. Mom's Time Out is a great opportunity for mothers to relax, refresh, and refuel. Our theme this year is Fear Not, Learning to Rest in God's Love. And you can join other moms in the ALCF community on the second and fourth Thursdays of the month starting September 26th from 10 a.m. to noon in the Fellowship Hall. And child care is available with pre-registration. Be sure to join us for service on Sunday, September 29th, when we'll share what's going on in the growth group community and let you know how you can get connected. ALCF is proud to host the first Bay Area Disability Ministry Conference where new parents, churches considering disability ministries, and established disability ministries can come together to learn, connect, and collaborate. Diane Kim, the keynote speaker, is a special needs ministry consultant, national speaker, and author of Unbroken Faith, Spiritual Recovery for the Special Needs Parent. This event takes place on Saturday, September 28th from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. in the sanctuary, and you can register today at disabilityministryconference.com. The last Sunday of each month is Family Sunday. Safari Kids will be closed that day, but your entire family is invited to join us in the sanctuary for our family-friendly worship celebration. Our next Family Sunday is September 29th. To sign up for any of these upcoming events, go to alcf.net slash signups or check out the ALCF app. And remember, Abundant Life exists to make a better you for a better world. Now, fathers, we open up your word. We do pray that you would speak to us. We have come into your presence. We have spoken to you. We have sung songs of praise and adoration to you. You are worth it. And we have spoken to each other. We have spoken words of life and encouragement of how you've brought us through those dark valleys of life. But Lord God, we dare leave your presence without hearing from you. So finish out our exchange this morning. Having spoken to you and one another, now you speak to us. Give us ears to hear what your spirit is saying. Bless, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. If you have your Bibles, please meet me in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. This is week 5 of our series going through the Sermon on the Mount called Impossibly Christian. We're calling it Impossibly Christian because one of the things you should feel when you read through the Sermon on the Mount, you should feel in a good way overwhelmed. There should be this sense that you go, I can't do this. And that's on purpose, because if you could do it, you wouldn't need a savior. So God wants to overwhelm you with the scriptures so that you're driven to the one who can do it. We can't, but he can. And that's why we are going through the sermon on the mount. Uh, let me just quickly remind you again, hope uh, to see you at the picnic. It's going to be a wonderful time. Bring your kids, wonderful face painting stuff for them, basketball stuff happening. I'm going to bring my spades. I've never lost a spades game at the church picnic. 
Uh, so um, when I beat you, we'll make an announcement about it in church, put it on the video. If you win, no one will ever know about it. Um, so anyways, no, seriously, I uh, hope you can make it. It's just going to be a great time, and I look forward to hanging out with you and fellowshipping with you as well. We've been having a good time on Tuesday nights for our foundations class, wonderful time of interaction. So uh, I teach a study as we're just walking through the foundations of the Christian life. If you're like, what does it mean to be a Christian, please join us from seven to eight, and um, we'll finish off sometimes with a meal, and it's just a rich time of study and community. So I want to encourage you in that. One verse, uh, we're looking at the fifth, excuse me, the fourth beatitude. Jesus says in Matthew chapter five, verse six, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. I want to teach this morning from the subject, Creatures of Desire, Creatures of Desire. On June 12, 1994, Ron Goldman and Nicole Brown Simpson were brutally murdered. And quickly, the nation's attention turned to a Hall of Fame running back and a very accomplished newscaster named O.J. Simpson. Soon after that, he was taken into custody and thus began what, what we would call the trial of the century. You probably even remember if you were around back then where you were on that October 1995 date when the verdict was announced. And no matter what your ethnicity may be, we were kind of all surprised and shocked when it came down that O.J. Simpson was declared not guilty. Right after that, we... We went back to life in business as usual, just about all of us except for one person, Ron Goldman's father, Fred. For the last 25 years, Fred Goldman has not let it go. And I'm not saying he should. Fred Goldman has had a burning desire in his words to bring the lying murderer to justice. He filed a wrongful death civil suit, in which Fred Goldman and, the, and his family were awarded $33 million, an amount he's yet to really collect on to this day. Fred Goldman has been unrelenting, filing lawsuit after lawsuit after lawsuit. In fact, when O.J. got out of jail this last time, he was met a day or two later after his release with, a, with another lawsuit from Fred Goldman. For the last quarter of a century, Fred Goldman has organized his life around one central operating desire, a desire for justice. Now, before we shake our, our heads and suck our teeth at Fred Goldman, you need to know a little bit of Fred Goldman lives in all of us. No, I'm not saying that we've all experienced the death of a child or even the, the driving passion for vengeance or justice. What I am saying is, like Fred Goldman, we are all creatures of desire who organize our lives around our appetites. Tomorrow morning, the alarm clock will go off, 
and we'll get out of bed and we'll go to work even if we don't feel like it because of our desire for food, clothing, and shelter. While at work, we, some of us, will, will really go hard and bust it and will seek to achieve and go after excellence because of a burning desire for success. For those of us who are married, we got married out of a burning desire for love and companionship and sex. And those things drove us to the altar. But also our burning desire for love, companionship, and sex has driven some individuals towards affair, affairs and ended them up in divorce court. Our desires cause us at times to gain weight. Our desires cause us at times to lose weight. Our desires at times drive us down into addiction. And our desires at times drive us upward into health and victory. Like it or not, we are all creatures of desire. We all have appetites. We all organize our lives around our cravings. It might shock you to know that the implicit idea of this beatitude when Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, Jesus is actually saying, organizing your life around your appetites is actually a good thing. Some of us maybe, I don't know when we bought the lie in church history that a badge of spiritual maturity is to be emotionless and stoic. Our emotions are created by God. Our desires are gifts of God. And our desires, our emotions, are not to be in the driver's seat of the car, but they should be in the car. And yet Jesus is saying there should be one desire in the driver's seat. An all-consuming passion for me. Christianity is not about just grin and bear it. Christianity is not just about discipline and white-knuckling your way through it as if, as if Jesus were a plate of broccoli or avocado. Or wait for it, you got it. <laughs> he wants to be desired. What does this look like? Here is Jesus, and in this beatitude, we have to remember, he's not giving this beatitude in some air-conditioned boardroom filled with upper-middle-class people. He's not given this beatitude at some leadership conference filled with very successful CEOs. He's giving this beatitude on the top of a hill with an audience composed primarily of lower income people. He's given this beatitude to individuals who on average made one denarius a day. Denarius a day is below minimum wage. It, it, was, it was an income so meager that one scholar says that the average person making this salary 
could only afford to eat meat once a week. So this is who Jesus is talking to. They ain't getting fat off of a denarius a day. In fact, it's safe to say that hunger is their close and familiar friend. That even as Jesus is talking, their stomachs are growling, literally. Not only that, he says not only blessed are those who hunger, but blessed are those who thirst. Remember, this is Jesus talking in a day, an age in which there are no ride shares. So they didn't lift or Uber their way to see Jesus. They didn't, they didn't hop in their own car or automobile. They didn't catch the subway or the train. They walked. When the Bible speaks of a day's journey, you should know that the average day's journey was 18 miles a day. So as you went in Palestine walking along, you have to remember there are no 7-Elevens along the way to pull in and get that big gulp. For those of you from back east, there are no Wawas. For those of you from down south, there are no Waffle Houses. In fact, oftentimes, the distance between wells was miles and miles. And if you're walking, that's hours. You're dealing with a parched throat. Who is Jesus talking to? Those in the audience right now dealing with empty stomachs and dry throats. Yet Jesus is not saying, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after in and out. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. We're going to learn in just a few moments that, that the issue of righteousness is not so much a what as it is a who. Let me go ahead and jump there, and I'll double back and explain it later on in the message. When Jesus is saying, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, he's really saying, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after me. So here is Jesus. He is taking our cravings. He's taking our desires. He's taking our longings. And he's not saying ignore them. Instead, he's saying rechannel and redirect them to me. The only one who can satisfy you. Jesus is saying, I need you to get this. I didn't die to be the object of your obligation. Jesus is not saying, I, did, I, I died so that you could just discipline yourself to be with me. Jesus is saying, I died that you would desire me. Come on with me, fellas. It's January 1998. I met a couple here. They, they're from Faithful Central. We were at the Proud Bird. Sitting on the pulpit, look out, there's Sister Corey with her fine self. Made me forget the, the words of the song. Sam, y'all just got married. I know y'all still in marital bliss. But I saw this girl and I just lost it. A couple weeks later, we didn't have, uh, we didn't have social media back then to stalk people on. Um, back in my day, you actually had to get up the courage to ask for the number. 
another sermon for another time. So I worked up the courage, asked Sister Corey for the number. She gave me the number. Come on, fellas, you know the rule. The rule is, if you get the number, standard operating procedure says you need to wait a window of 48 to 72 hours. You don't want to come across as if you're too excited. Come on, go with me, somebody. So she gave me the number, but I was so, my desire for her was so off the rails, I called her later that day. And we began a courtship, hanging out. I was Poe, couldn't afford the other O and the R, broke in grad school, seminary. I used to take her out to eat and pray she wouldn't order off a certain side of the menu. Took long walks on Redondo Beach. She turned this introvert into an extrovert. We used to talk on the telephone, and this is uh, in CD days. Some of y'all remember them, CDs, okay. They're these circular things that look like miniature albums, and we, we both loved a group called Casey and JoJo, and I'd be on my phone there in Paramount. She'd be on her phone with a lo- little long cord. Some of y'all remember that thing? Uh, in, in her home in North Hollywood, and we'd be on the phone 11 o'clock at night, and we'd put the same CD in at the same time, go to the same track, push play at the same time. I'm turning in my man card. Because it's the crazy stuff you do when you desire. And then we get tired on the phone. No, you hang up. No, you hang up. No, you hang up. And then on July 3rd, 1999, we get married. And a couple months later, my wife comes to me in so many words, she's, she's like, what the heck happened? She just paints this picture how she feels like she's been hoodwinked, bamboozled, <laughs> run amok. This extrovert done turned into an introvert. And in so many words, she says, I don't, I don't feel desired. And I had to learn a lesson that we married people have to learn, and that is the wedding day is not a finish line, it's actually a starting line. That the pursuit and desire doesn't end at I do. It's just beginning. I don't really date to marry, I marry to date. I think that's what Jesus is saying to some of us right now. What the heck happened? Remember, you got first got saved. You knew one verse, but you told everybody that one verse. You didn't know a lot of theology. All you know is Jesus moved into your life, changed your world, and I got to tell someone or I'm going to lose it. And the prayers were intense. Theologically wrong, but intense. And you poured your heart out to God. And you were crying out to God. And now what's happened? Now you got that much theology and that much passion. Jesus is like, you treat me like like a plate of asparagus. What's happened? 
Whenever I struggle with desire, I like hanging out with people who, who have that passion. If you don't see people with a passion for Christ around you, no problem, just open up your Bible. Read the psalmist. Spend some time in the longest chapter in the Bible, Psalm 119. And Psalm 119, you'll hear psalmists say stuff like, uh, I long for you, I, I crave for your commandments. Or if you don't have time to read Psalm 119, go to Psalm 63. Psalm 63, it's written by David, and David's been sitting on the throne, and, and just like that, his world gets flipped, turned upside down. His best friend, Ahithophel, has betrayed him, working in cahoots and in concert with his son, Absalom. They've betrayed him. Now he's fleeing like a fugitive from his, from his kingdom. He's lost his position. He's lost his, his status. He's lost his swagger. And in the middle of the desert, what does he say? Oh, God, you are my God. Hear the craving. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. This blows my mind. If I'm David, I'm not going to say this. God, here's my prayer. Get me my job back. Get me my title back. Get me my swag back. Get, get, get rid of my enemies. But David is saying, look, look, look God, I just, just want to be clear on something. I've lost everything, and I still want you. So God, I want you to know something. I didn't sign up for this for the benefits package. I'm ride or die. If God took everything away from you right now, everything, would you still want him? Or are you following him for the benefits? Do you crave him for his gifts? Or do you crave him for who he is? There's a problem. All of us struggle with hunger and desire, and I just want to riff on this for, for really the balance of our message here as we round second and head for third. All of us struggle with, with our hunger and thirst for Jesus. Not all of you, all of us. Let me just debunk the, the myth. I don't get up in the morning just longing for Jesus. Easier said than done. This is tough stuff. And the reason why it's tough is because all of us have lesser desires. And sometimes these lesser desires become disordered. That our lesser desires can supplant what should be our all-consuming desire for Christ, and that gets pushed down. But here's the problem. When we turn to the other desires of this life to find fulfillment, we'll never find fulfillment, only emptiness. Come here, Dennis Rodman. I don't know if you saw the 30 for 30 film on him the other week. Heartbreaking. Dennis, Hall of Fame basketball player, one of the greatest rebounders ever. 
Here's a man, his dad walked out on him. I don't, even, I don't even know if his dad was, I don't think his dad was ever in the picture. His father fathered 25 kids. Never in Dennis's life. Then in his formative years, Dennis's mom throws him out of the house. What you see is this gaping wound in Dennis, a longing for acceptance and approval. And the rest of his life, he spent trying to medicate and fill that wound. So he says, let, let me try sex. Slept with everything moving. In fact, it's said of Dennis that he was bisexual. His cravings for attention led him to put on a wedding dress. He's an alcoholic. His anger. If he felt he needed to lash out, that's what he did. He got into fights on the, cor- on the court and even kicked a cameraman just off the court. And then YouTube, his Hall of Fame acceptance speech, it is a blubbering, incoherent rant in which he is apologizing to his daughter at the Hall of Fame, saying, I'm sorry, I was not a good dad. And what you see is a man who denied himself nothing and in the process ended up profoundly empty. Friends, that's that's all of us. All of us have a wound and all of us are trying to medicate. Now what you're sipping on may not be what I'm sipping on. But we're all sipping on something. And if it's not Jesus, it's going to leave you emptier. So get the picture. Dennis Rodman denied himself nothing. Put him next to Jesus. Jesus goes to his grave, a poor, homeless, single virgin, scorned by the world, but no one lived a more fulfilling life. Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. My food ain't at Safeway. It ain't at Bevmo. It ain't in a bottle. It's in God. So right now, Jesus is teaching this stuff. Their stomachs are literally growling. They're thirsty. They're probably thinking about the meal they're going to have. And maybe some of them are saying, okay, Jesus, hurry up, get through with this. And then they're going to go eat. And then they're going to go drink. And then only a couple hours later, they'll have to do it again. They'll get hungry. They'll, they'll have to eat and drink again. And only a couple hours later, they'll have to do it again. And so here's the maddening thing about life. The maddening thing about life is when we look to the lesser desires of this life to find fulfillment, they never fulfill us. And we have to keep going back and going back and going back and going back. You're never done. Now, why is that? Listen to our boy C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis says, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. Jesus Jesus is like, wake up! Just like one meal, 
won't satisfy your literal hunger for life. Just like one hookup with someone that you met on Tinder won't satisfy your longing for life. So maybe if I can just get in your business for a little bit. Some of us know what it's like. Wake up in a stranger's bed early on a Saturday morning. Friday night was crazy. And you wake up early in the morning in this stranger's bed. And you're probably filled with regret and shame. Going, what was I thinking? G.K. Chesterton said, Every young man knocking on the door of a brothel is really looking for God. Like you never look, you never leave a hookup going, I'm good. I'm good. Check that box, done. For some of you, maybe you identify with Dennis. That dad left, that mom wasn't who she should have been in your life, that, that early childhood traumatic event happened, the assault, the betrayal, the abandonment, now it's left you with a wound called low self-esteem, poor self-confidence, and now the rest of your life you're going, I'm going to fill that, and so that can take many forms. Maybe it's driving you into addiction. For some of you, maybe you're an overachiever. And your overachievement isn't about doing a good job, it's really about Someone's going to tell me they're proud of me because dad never did. I was talking to a very well-known football player. He's headed to the Hall of Fame. We were doing ministry together in Angola, and I sat with him. If I said his name, you would know it. Very accomplished wide receiver, and I said to him, I said, hey, man, you played the game with passion. I've never seen someone play as passionately as you do. What was that about? He said, that wasn't passion. He says, that was anger. Anger over a dad who didn't come to a single one of my games. In every game, I took that anger, and I went out saying, I'm going to make him regret not watching me play. He says, here's my problem now. I've retired, and I don't know what to do with that. We're all medicated. All of us are. Let's go home on this one. Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. What is righteousness? Righteousness is living in conformity to God's moral standards as found in his Bible. It's different from the kingdom of the world. The kingdom of the world has a standard of righteousness. It's seen in such things as tolerance. So the world says, here's what righteousness is. You do what you want to do. Whatever makes you happy, you do it. And whatever makes them happy, that's fine. As long as that doesn't intrude on you, let them be them. So you just tolerate people. That's a brand of righteousness that our world subscribes to. That's not the righteousness of the kingdom of heaven. 
But the better question is not what is righteousness, but who is righteous. If you get nothing else I say, I want you to get this. Get to know the names of God because the names of God reveal the nature of God. If you want to know who God is, learn his names. One of the names for God is Jehovah Sidkenu. That simply means the Lord, our righteousness. God doesn't just do righteous things. He is righteous. So that when he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, he's really saying, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after God. We've all been there, haven't we? Maybe you've done it with your kids. Maybe you remember doing it as a kid. I'm in the kitchen cooking, getting dinner ready, and here's Jaden going into the pantry. He comes out of the pantry about an hour before dinner with a big old bag of Cheetos. What do I say to Jaden? Jaden, have you lost your mind? Put the Cheetos down. Because nothing that ends with Eatos is good for you. <laughs> Doritos, Cheetos, burritos, taquitos, whatever. Put it down. Now, why do I tell him an hour before dinner, put it away? Because, Jaden, I don't want you snacking on the lesser thing that it causes you to lose your appetite for the better thing. What are you snacking on? What's your Cheetos? What's your Doritos? All right, let's take it back. What's your Funyuns? Funyuns, what are, what are Funyuns? You have not lived. I'm sure they've got gluten-free Funyuns, but anyways. This is an important point. If you struggle with your desire for God... It's probably because you've been snacking on something else. If you want to restore desire for God, if you want to intensify hunger for God, take inventory of what you're snacking on and get rid of it. Or maybe who are you snacking on? I had a couple once say to me, she just said, listen, I said to him, something's off here. Like the desire's gone. And she asked questions and investigated. And sure enough, an affair popped up. See, you can't be passionate about your spouse and have a side dish at the same time. You know why God says I'm a jealous God? Because, Brian, just like you won't share Corey with anybody else, I'm not sharing you with anybody else. So how do I intensify my cravings for Christ? Take an inventory. What have I been snacking on? Money, success, pleasure. What's gotten out of hand? Here it is. Jesus gives us a divine paradox. Watch it. Don't miss it. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst 
after me, after righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. You missed it. Catch the irony. In me, you will be hungry and satisfied. You missed it. In me, you will be hungry and satisfied. Satisfied and hungry. Hungry and satisfied. Satisfied and hungry. What? I had a friend of mine. He lost about 90 pounds. One of my best friends. Got all ripped and everything. And man, I was like, bro, talk to a brother. What in the world? I was like, man, what'd you do? And he's explaining it to me. And I'm like, man, do you even crave bad stuff? He says, absolutely. And then he said something to me I'll never forget. He says, absolutely, I crave bad stuff. He says, but what's interesting is I've gotten to a place where I'm telling myself healthy feels better than anything tastes. Healthy feels better than anything tastes. What is he saying? I still get hungry, but I'm satisfied. You know what Jesus is saying? When you've really tasted of me in righteousness, righteousness feels better than any sin tastes. When you've really experienced those moments of walking in victory and drawing near to him as he's drawing near to you, no hookup can replace that. So Jesus is saying, are you still going to be running away from me? Trying to find satisfaction apart from me? Or are you going to turn to me? Romans 3 says this. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We are born into this world fallen people. As Blaise Pascal says, we all have a God-sized hole in our heart that only God can fulfill. In all of life, we are on a quest for meaning, for value, and for significance. But our problem is we're going after lesser things to find that. And in Romans 3, he says, here's what's going to fulfill that. I love the phrase, the righteousness of God. He says, we're all empty. But here's what happened for you on the cross. Jesus Christ for you and for me became what we could not become for ourselves. He became our righteousness. And then when we get saved, what does God do? Theologians call it, he imparts or he imputes the righteousness of God into our morally bankrupt hearts. And God now declares us to be righteous, not because we've done good things, but because we have received his son, Jesus Christ. My son's in college and he's broke, he's poe too. And, of course, he hit me up for money the other day. You know, when I was coming up and I asked my dad for money, we had to wait. Like, he had to write the check, put it in an envelope, put a stamp on the envelope, and then I had to wait three days later. But not now. 
My son was like, oh, you don't need to send me a check. I've already figured this out for you, Dad. <laughs> he introduced me to this cash app called Zelle. He's got the cash app. And so when his account says insufficient funds, which we're having to talk about that and credit and all that stuff, and he says, Dad, I, I need help. I don't have it. With the press of a button, I can take the abundance in my account, get him what he needs in his bankrupt account. No waiting. Immediately he has what he needs. When we got saved, friends, an overdrawn account, an empty heart, Jesus Christ on the cross took out his cash app and transferred from his abundant account the righteousness of Christ. No waiting. We are made righteous. 